If you uh, have your Bible, you can take it out and turn to 1 Samuel. I'm not exactly sure where to tell you to turn this morning because we're going to cover so much. But this summer, we've been taking a look at David, a man after God's own heart, and in particular, the early life of David. And we're going to finish this up this morning. If you've been around Redeemer, you know that I love the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and He rides upon the storm. And the second verse of that great hymn says this, deep in unfathomable minds. So mine is something underground, right? In deep in unfathomable minds of never-ending skill. He fashions up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. Down in the mine, it's dark and it can be scary. And down there, you and I can't see what's going on. But deep in unfathomable minds of never-ending skill. What a great little phrase about our God. There is no end to his skill. There's no limit to his ability to do incredible things. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-ending skill, he fashions up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. Jeff Robinson is a pastor and he was writing in the Gospel Coalition. He said about this hymn, William Cooper may have spent much time in the darkness but he saw the light. The world is groaning. We are groaning. But God is protecting us, forging our faith on the anvil of affliction because of his love for us and because of a passion for his own glory. Charles Spurgeon once said that God's sovereignty is a doctrine for rough weather. God moves in a mysterious way is a hymn for stormy days. And there are many such days in a fallen world. It wasn't just Cooper's experience. It is all of our experience at one time or another. We feel like God is forging our faith on the anvil of affliction. We feel like we are going through rough weather or stormy days. And that was certainly true of David. If you've been with us over the last seven weeks, you've known it. You've seen his ups and downs, his hardships, his stormy weather. And we've looked at lots of different things about David and more importantly about our God. This morning, I want us to finish up thinking about his perseverance. I want to run through some stuff that I have no intention of you to remember, but I hope as you listen to it, you'll feel it. In chapter 16, David was but a young fellow, and the prophet Samuel came to anoint the new king of Israel who would take the place of Saul. But you remember that David, young David, was out tending the sheep. He was overlooked by his own father. He was overlooked by his own family. He was overlooked even by Samuel. In chapter 17, when he had the chance 
against Goliath when no one else in Israel would take the challenge. David is the one who steps forward. But even as he does, his older brother laughs at him. Saul, the king of Israel, looks at him and says, you're far too young and inexperienced for anything like this. And when he does match up against Goliath, Goliath is the one who just mocks him to no end. After his defeat of Goliath, and in chapter 18, as David's stature begins to rise within Israel, you remember the story, Saul gets jealous, envious, and hateful of David. Tries to kill him. David probably, along with the others in the court, just thinks Saul is having a bad day. That he's acting the madman as he was sometimes known to do. But even later in the chapter, when Saul would see that his own efforts to kill David wouldn't work, he would try to farm David out to the Philistines, send David out to war in hopes that the Philistines would kill him. In chapter 19, Saul's intentions become more overt. He himself can't kill David. The Philistines can't kill David. And so he commands his own men to kill David. And it'll be Jonathan and his wife Michael and the Lord himself who will protect David. In chapter 21, along the way, as David is fleeing Saul, we see him stumble, if you will, in his lying to Ahimelech, the priest, trusting in swords. And when he gets away to the Philistines, fearful of his own life, he plays the madman in front of the Philistines. We didn't take a look at that story, but David absolutely acts the fool among them. He's afraid that they're going to kill him, and so he begins to act insane. He starts scribbling on the gates of the Philistine walls, and he lets saliva, spit, run down his mouth. So much so that the king of the Philistines says, who brought this guy here? Do I lack madmen? Just kind of a funny verse. In chapter 22, David is holed up in a cave all alone. Soon he will be joined by, we saw this, the distressed, the indebted, and the discontented among Israel. Boy, things are looking up for David, huh? Those are his buddies that are coming. Later in that same chapter, Saul, King Saul, will kill the priests of Nob because of the situation that David has created with his own lie. In chapter 23, David is on the run again, quote, wherever they could go, David and his men, and quote, Saul was seeking him every day, seeking his life. David is on the run to Kilah to the strongholds, to the wilderness of Ziph, to Horesh, to the wilderness of Maon. It's just from here to there to there to there. In chapter 24, he finds himself at En Gedi, a beautiful place. You'll remember that. He's in the cave with his guys. And lo and behold, Saul comes in. And David has to endure the evil intentions of his men who are encouraging him to no end to kill Saul. In chapter 26, or in chapter 25, he is in the wilderness of Paran. 
He and his men are tired, no doubt. They have been on the run for a long time. They are hungry, and they are running low on supplies. David takes some of his men, and he says, go to Nabal for food. He's shearing his sheep, and things are great. We've been kind to Nabal and his shepherds, and kindly ask for some food. If you remember that story, Nabal rebuffs David's request. And in his flesh, David is going to have his vengeance. You remember just after chapter 24 in which he would not lay a hand upon Saul, the Lord's anointed. In which he would entrust himself to God and entrust his future to God. In the very next chapter, he says, fellas, grab your swords. This guy and all the men in his household are going to die. He is restrained by God through the young man of Nabal and Nabal's wife, Abigail. In chapter 26, he is on the run again. And Saul is after him again. And this time, David takes a more aggressive bent. He himself goes out to find where Saul is camp at camp. And he takes one of his guys with him, and they find Saul. But again, David will not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. They will go into the camp of Saul. They will steal some of his stuff. And then David will announce to Saul, essentially, I could have killed you again, but I didn't. I'm not going to lay a hand on you thinking that that may again change Saul's intentions. But only again in the next chapter, 27, despair begins to set in David's heart. He says, Saul is going to sweep me away. And so he again flees to the Philistines. The Philistines are the arch enemies of Israel. And here is David again going to them. Dale Ralph Davis, in commenting on this part of the story, in the chapter in his book, calls this accepting the Philistines as your personal savior. From the Philistines, he begins to raid Israel's enemies, but it's all under a false guise that later in the chapter puts him in a very tricky situation. Chapter 29 He's with the Philistines. He is, quote, fighting for the Philistines. But the Philistines are about to go to war against the Israelites. And now David's in a pickle. What does he do? Is he going to go with the Philistines to fight against his own people? Thankfully, in God's mercies, the Philistine army are on to him. They're not fooled by him, or at least they don't want to be. This had to unnerve David that now the Philistine army is on to his guys. And so, the king of the Philistine army sends David away. David, when he was among the Philistines, the Philistine king had given them a city called Ziklag to stay in. So David and all of his men and their wives and their sons and their daughters had set up in Ziklag. And from Ziklag, 
pretending to be friends with the Philistines, David was making raids on some of Israel's enemies. But again, the Philistines, the king especially, really liked what David was doing because David was telling him he was out defeating the Philistine enemies. The Philistine king said, come with us against Israel. So David and his men are going out with the Philistines against Israel, and it's at that time that the Philistine army starts to question this, and David is sent back to Ziklag. When he gets there, the Amalekites from the south had gone into Ziklag, and they had burned the city to the ground, taken all of their wives, all of their sons, and all of their daughters away. The text tells us in chapter 30, when David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with, with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. The people, the men, become so frustrated with David that they think and ponder stoning him to death. That plan doesn't come to fruition and David takes his men and leads them against the Amalekites and David slaughters them all. When you read 1 Samuel 30, you're not really sure what to make of David and his utter slaughtering from twilight until the evening of the next day and not a man of them escaped. In chapter 31, Saul, the Lord's anointed, the king of Israel, will be dead. And Jonathan, his good friend, will be dead. Ugh. It's tiring just to go through it like that. Imagine living it. Imagine living one thing after another, the anvil of affliction, the rough days, the stormy weather. One said it like this, hunted, tracked, attacked by Saul, treacherously exposed, making thrilling escapes and executing daring escapades. Chapter after chapter full of high blood pressure narrative. It's the stuff that makes great movies, but takes its toll on real people. And speaking of chapter 30, Dale Ralph Davis, who's been wonderful help to me throughout this series, he said it like this. So chapter 30 is when David had been among the Philistines. They sent him home back to Ziklag. And when he gets back, the city's burned and his, their wives and children are gone. He said it like this. The problem with the disaster at Ziklag is that it is not an isolated one. For David, the pounding had been going on since 1 Samuel 18. I started this in 16. But 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, all the way to chapter 30. The problem with the disaster at Ziklag is not that it is an isolated one. For David, the pounding had been going on since 1 Samuel 18. 
From the latest emergency in chapter 27, he had just received a marvelous deliverance in chapter 29. How they had looked forward to arriving in Ziklag. How long the 60 miles seemed. How fine it would be simply to enjoy the relief among loved ones. Now this. When they get there, it's up in smoke. Their wives, sons, and daughters are gone. The, the yo-yo effect seems to make the battering more excruciating. A marvelous escape, a moment to breathe, a grand relief, only to be thrown into the pit again. It's a terrible illustration, but the only thing I could think of this week was Pat Green's song, Wave on Wave. Wave, you know, he's, he's singing about a girl <laughs> who came upon him wave upon wave. But this is trial, hardship, pain, affliction that's coming upon David wave upon wave, pounding, 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 pounding. And I think it's good for us to consider his response. Through his trials and through his sufferings, through his faltering faith, and even through his sins. What did David not do? I want to make a quick point, but it's a, it's a, it's a key. David did not quit. David did not curse God and die, as Job's wife would tell him to do. David did not even just go quietly into the night back to an old way of life. For all of the trial and for all of the affliction, for all of his own faults and even his magnificent sins, David stayed at it with God. Just a few from the story. Whenever Goliath was there and all Israel was shaking in their boots, knowing not what to do, it was David who came on the scene and said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? If you'll remember that far back, those are the first words of David that we have in the Bible. He's the one who interjects into the situation the living God. And don't you love it when you have friends like that? When you are fretting over a situation, you're fearful and anxious and you don't know what to do and all of a sudden somebody says, you know what, But God, God can do something here. You're like, thank you. I haven't even thought about the Lord. It's David who says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. In chapter 23, when he is in the midst of all of the ups and downs, he prays. So David inquired of the Lord saying, and he asked the Lord about a particular situation. 
And just a few verses later, the situation changed a bit. And the text says, then David inquired of the Lord once more. He inquired of the Lord. He inquired of the Lord once more. It's interesting. We never really see King Saul praying in 1 Samuel. Until you get to where? 1 Samuel 28. And Saul is praying. But who's he praying to? The witch of Endor. Asking that this witch would bring up for her Samuel from the dead. And we'll come back to this, but think about all of the Psalms that David wrote during this period of his life. Whenever you're reading through the Psalms, and sometimes the header above it will say, a Psalm of David written during his time fleeing from Saul. Or a Psalm of David written when he was in the cave of Adullam. Bunches of David's Psalms are written during this time. And what is he doing in those Psalms? He's not quitting. He's not cursing God. He may be deeply pouring out his heart, but he's deeply pouring out his heart to the Lord. He hasn't turned away from God. In the midst of all of this, he strives to obey the Lord. You can imagine how difficult it would be for him. Saul seeking his life over and over and over and over and over again. And now David's got him in the cave right there. All he has to do is choke him out or drive a spear through his back. And his buddies are cheering him on. This is the day that the Lord has made. And David depending on how we interpret it, maybe thought about it with the cutting off of the robe. But he said, I'm not going to go about it this way. I'm not going to take my own vengeance. I'm not going to lay a hand upon the Lord's anointed. In the midst of all of this, he trusts God. He entrusts himself and his future into God's hands in chapter 24, may the Lord judge between me and you, Saul. May the Lord, the Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. In chapter 26, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him or his day will come that he dies or he will go down into battle and perish. David is trusting God, David is also struggling through the midst of it all. As we saw last week, the best of men are men at best. He lies to Abimelech, the priest. He trusts in swords. He flees to the Philistines. Some of you who've been in the Bible for a long time remember the story of Abraham. When he comes into the land that God had promised, but then he flees the land of Israel to go find shelter down in Egypt. God never told him to go down there, and it leads to a bit of trouble for Abraham. God never told David to flee Israel and head to, Philistine, to the Philistines for safety. He has to act the madman among them, scribbling on the doors and letting his spit run down his face. He cuts off Saul's robe, or at least that portion of it, only to be convicted of his sin he threatens to kill Nabal and every male in his house with vengeance. 
He lets despair come over him. In chapter 27, he flees again to the shelter of the Philistines, deceiving them along the way. He slaughters the Amalekites in a way that leaves you scratching your head. The best of men are men at best, but again, through it all, he has his eye towards heaven. If, I'm, if we're going to look at one verse, I want you to look at chapter 30. Chapter 30, verses 1 to 6. This is getting to the end of 1 Samuel. It's getting almost to the end of Saul's life. But this is the story when they come back to Ziklag. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with them lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him, for all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. And here it is. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Some of you old timers will remember J. Vernon McGee. I hadn't pulled him off the shelf in a long time, but I thought I would. David was greatly distressed, not only because he lost his loved ones, but because his men spoke of stoning him. Because David was the leader, they blamed him for leaving Ziklag and going with the Philistines. David had made a blunder, a great blunder. Most folk think of David as the shepherd boy who slew Goliath. Also, they remembered the black side of his life, the great sin he committed with Bathsheba. What they don't realize is that David was very much a human being like the rest of us. He made many blunders just like we do. He made a mistake when he left Israel to live among the Philistines. Now his men are ready to stone him because, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. Notice they do not seem to be grieving for their wives. Do you know why? They think their wives have been slain, but that their children are still alive. As the common colloquialism says it, David was between a rock and a hard place. He was between the devil and the deep blue sea. He was in a bad spot. He had lost his loved ones, his own followers, under this great emotional strain of having lost their loved ones, want to stone him. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. This is one of the most wonderful statements ever made. Friend, there are times in our lives when the circumstances will not produce any joy or happiness. There are times when we find ourselves in dark places like David. We look about and the situation looks hopeless. What should we do? Be discouraged, give up, say that we are through. 
Friend, if we are children of God, we will encourage ourselves in the Lord. We will turn to him at times like this. Sometimes the Lord puts us in such a spot so we will turn to him. He wants to make himself real to us. It was during times like these that David wrote some of his most beautiful and helpful psalms. When troubles come, you can thumb your way through the psalms and find where David is encouraging himself in the Lord. Several times he says, the Lord is good. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. David found this to be true. David didn't quit. Through the battering from chapter 16 all the way to 31. He didn't curse God and die. He didn't even go quietly into the night saying, you know, I'm, I'm just done with the Lord. He stayed at it with the Lord. What did God do in the midst of it? The troubles, if you will, the trials drew out David's faith. Was David's faith real? Is your faith real? Sometimes it's hard to tell until the hard times come. And that's when it's revealed where our deep trust is. David was put through the ringer over and over and over again, and yet he persevered through it all. He kept trusting the Lord. Is your faith real? Is mine real? It's one thing to profess that we trust the Lord, that we love the Lord. It's another thing to go through very difficult times and not quit, not throw in the towel, not curse God and die, but to trust him even as we weep, even as we struggle to keep right there with the Lord. In first, or in, in Hebrews, you don't have to turn there, but the book of Hebrews is written to a church full of Christians who were going through some very, very difficult times and they were tempted to quit. Many of them, as you read the letter, you come away thinking that many of them were on the verge, not just tempted, but, but really close to giving up on faith in Jesus and going back to an old way of life. Giving up on following Jesus and going back to Judaism. Giving back on suffering for Jesus and going back to when things were easier. In chapter 10, verse 32, the author says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So he's, he's telling them, remember those former days when you went through hardship and you trusted God through them. 
Therefore, now today, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my, righteousness, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. Brothers and sisters, we sometimes, if not all the time, have need of endurance. When the anvil of affliction, when the stormy weather, when the rough waters, similar to what David is going through, the pounding day after day, week after week, month after month, David persevered. He kept praying. He kept bringing God into the equation. He kept trusting, even as he would falter and even sin. He would strengthen himself in the Lord. Let you and I do the same, and then briefly, these troubles that God put David through deepened him. Not only proved that his faith was the real deal, but deepened him and made him something better than he was before. I read from this several weeks ago. This is a great little book, A Tale of Three Kings, talking about Saul and David and his son Absalom. Here's just a brief chapter. When David is in the cave of Adullam, and before his buddies have shown up, he's all alone. Caves are not the ideal place for morale building, there is a certain sameness to them all, no matter how many you have lived in. Dark, wet, cold, stale. A cave becomes even worse when you are its sole inhabitant. And in the distance, you can hear the dogs baying. But sometimes, when the dogs and hunters were not near, the hunted sang. Of course, David is the hunted he started low, then lifted his voice and sang the song the little lamb had taught him. Probably a reference to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The cavern walls echoed each note just as the mountains had once done. The music rolled down into deep cavern darkness that soon became an echoing choir singing back to him. He had less now than when he was a shepherd. For now he had no lyre, no son, not even the company of sheep. The memories of the court had faded. A reference to when David was in Saul's court and enjoying Saul's favor. David's greatest ambition now reached no higher than a shepherd's staff. Everything was being crushed out of him. He sang a great deal and matched each note with a tear. How strange is it not what suffering begets? How strange is it not what suffering begets? There in those caves, drowned in the sorrow of his song and in the song of his sorrow, David became the greatest hymn writer 
and the greatest comforter of broken hearts this world shall ever know. God took him and put him through the fire. And it was in that fire that came the Psalms that you and I find such comfort in. Here's a poem. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods and watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with the mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How God bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses in which every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. God wants to shape you and me. When God wants to forge you and me, he doesn't do it by putting us through sweet times. He does it through hardship and through trial. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-ending skill, he fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are rich with mercy and shall break with blessing on your head. His purposes are ripening fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. You think this bud was bitter for David? Oh, weeping till he could weep no more. But sweet will be the flower. One more brief chapter. He ran through the soggy fields and down slimy riverbeds. Sometimes the dogs came close. Sometimes they even found him. Now, in the Psalms, David will talk often of the dogs. It's, it's his enemies. It's Saul and his men. But swift feet, rivers, and watery pits hid him. He took his food from the fields, dug roots from the roadside, slept in trees, hid in ditches, crawled through briars and mud. For days he ran, not daring to stop or eat. He drank the rain, half naked, all filthy. On he walked, stumbled, crawled, and clawed. Caves were castles now. Pits were home. In times past, mothers had always told their children that if they did not behave, they would end up like the town drunk. No longer. They had a better, more frightening story. Be good, or you'll end up like that giant killer. In Jerusalem, when teachers taught students to be submissive to the king and to honor the Lord's anointed, David was the parable. See, this is what God does to rebellious men. Of course, you and I know the story. David was not a rebellious man. 
But that was the story that Saul was telling and everybody was believing. The young listeners shuddered at the thought and somberly resolved never to do anything, to have anything to do with rebellion. So it was then, so it is now, and so it shall ever be. Much later, David would reach a foreign land and a small, very small measure of safety. Philistine, among the Philistines. Here too, he was feared, hated, lied about, and plotted against. He shook hands with murder on several occasions. These were David's darkest hours. We know them as his pre-king days, but he didn't. He may have assumed this was his lot forever. Suffering was giving birth. Humility was being born. By earthly measures, he was a shattered man. By heaven's measure, a broken one. These were his pre-king days. God knew that, but David didn't. When you and I are going through suffering, boy, we don't know what God is up to. We wonder what in the world is he doing? He's breaking us. He's humbling us. He's drawing us close to him to wean us off of ourselves so that we'll look to him and trust in him and him alone. Brothers and sisters, let you and I, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, let's persevere, no matter what comes our way. The anvil of affliction, the stormy weather. May God help us. When peace like a river attendeth my way, or sorrows like sea billows fall, roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Let's pray. Oh God, would you sink this nail deeply into us that we would time and time and time again as oft as needed strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Help us to persevere. Help us to endure. Help us to cling to Christ all the time. Oh God, guard us from the temptation to curse God and die. Guard us from the temptation to turn back to an old way of life. Help us to stay. As the disciples said of old to Jesus who said to them, are you gonna leave also? And they said, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. May that be us. And God, would you take our trials and take our afflictions and take our sufferings, even our faulting fits and even our sins, and through them, would you use them to shape us and mold us into men and women who are more like your son Jesus and who by your grace can be more fruitful for the cause of Christ. And we will pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.